Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The purpose of a weather alert, whether it be a watch or warning, is to reach people and save the most lives. But what if the message of those alerts isn't clear or causes confusion? That has been a concern of meteorologists and communication experts and what sparked the reason for updating our current system. Our guest today is Dr. Susan Jasko, Senior Research Scientist at the University of Alabama. Today, Dr. Jasko is here to talk about the importance of the communication side of the changes to the National Weather Service's alert system. Susan, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, I'm happy to be here. Well, I got it. We asked this question to all of our guests uh, on, on the podcast, and I don't know if it's true, but I know you are certainly a part of our community, very well respected in our community. Are you a weather geek now or have you always been one? <laughs> Um, I, I don't think I can actually count myself a, a weather geek. Um, I think really I'm, I'm probably more of one now than I was maybe 10 years ago. But um, uh, but really, I remember a discussion when I was up on the council of the American Meteorological Society. And I believe you were president then. Uh, and um, we were talking about the boxes that people check off when they apply to be members. Remember that? Yes. And, um, and I complained there was no box for me. And everybody said, oh, there's weather enthusiasts. And I said, I, I'm not a weather enthusiast. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point you made at that time because you yeah. worked at the intersection of weather and communication. But right. um, your, your story was a little different from, frankly, many of the guests we have on the show that they were inspired right. by a storm or in awe of weather since seventh grade. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. None of that is true for me. I, I kind of quake in the face of weather. <laughs> Um, but uh, but instead, really, what it was was um, being asked to participate in the 2011 Hurricane Irene assessment team um, that that Noah put together, and that was um, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who organized it. But I had really no almost no background at that moment in in great depth about it, and so I kind of stepped into that not knowing quite what to expect and. A year later, it took us a full year to get that report done, unheard of. Um, and a year later, and I was in hook, line, and sinker, um, really interested in the humans involved in the process and the efforts for experts to manage their expertise and communicate it out to the public in a way that, of course, for the Weather Service and NOAA, it's about saving lives and property. So that's what hooked me was the people involved. Yeah, let me give you listeners a background on on Susan, who I've known for some time, as you heard, we actually, I think, first met each other around that time we were both on council. Uh, she's a senior research scientist at the University of Alabama, and she's been there since 2019. Uh, before that, she spent the bulk of her career and where I first knew her at uh, as a professor at California University of Pennsylvania. She was there from 1998 to 2019. And she has a Ph.D. in communication from the Ohio State <laughs> University. And I made sure I got that the in there. But it's interesting because you have a Ph.D. in communication. So many weather geeks listeners say, wow, that's a little bit different from 
what we normally talk about. But Susan, talk about this sort of movement within the weather climate enterprise for thinking about aspects of communication, psychology, and other social sciences as it relates to weather forecasting and the warning part of the forecast message. Okay, so um, I think that originally the social behavioral science that, that had a foothold in the weather community and inside of NOAA, for example, were uh, economists, right? Because looking for a way to value and put a dollar value when possible on uh, risk and loss, right? Uh, lives saved and property managed better and things like that, assets managed better. That's important. It's important to feed that back to Congress. It's important for the taxpayers to know. Um, but I think but when I was doing the Hurricane Irene assessment in 2011 as part of that team, there was sort of a bubbling going on about an interest in providing better decision support services and understanding how the messaging that had been traditionally done and is still done by the Weather Service was and wasn't functioning well. And so at that moment, I think there was uh, an opening up to what can we learn from a NOAA point of view from other social and behavioral sciences. And so those of us with communication backgrounds, and there are a number of us, right, who, uh, who are involved um, in the field now. So, you know, Gina Esco's degree is in communication, her specifically in risk communication, and um, uh, Julie DeMuth, I believe, and Rebecca Morris. I mean, there's this, there's this pretty good sized little cadre of us, right, from communication in particular. Um, and then, of course, we have folks from psychology and sociology and a number of other disciplines. Um, and the good part about that is we all bring a somewhat different perspective to bear on looking at the dynamic between what's going on expert-wise inside of an agency, so organizationally, and what's going on out in the public sectors, right, and how information and understanding are moving across or failing to move across those lines well. Um, and from a communication point of view, I guess I could say that uh, communication is a really rich and deep field, and we look at communication from the interpersonal one-on-one -on -one level up through organizational, small groups and organizational, out to what we used to think of as sort of broadcast level communication and public speaking. And now uh, the digital era, right, where those traditional lines got kind of blurred Right. Because here you and I are talking interpersonally in a way face to face, but we're not face to face. Yeah. Um, and so um, uh, but also lots of people in communication, we have a background in thinking about what's going on at the big social and cultural level. And how is that impacting the way people receive messages and make sense of them? So I think there's been a lot to contribute. And we're talking with Dr. Susan Jasko from the University of Alabama. She's a part of the Center for Advanced Public Safety. And I'm going to talk a little bit more and ask you a little bit more about that a bit later. We we invited you on to talk about changes in the National Weather Service's okay. alert and warning system, their advisories and so forth. And we'll get to that. But I want to stay with what you're up to uh, at the Center for Advanced Public Safety for a moment. First of all, tell us a little bit about what that center is. And sure. then you mentioned that you were working on tornadoes, uh, Vortex Southeast, which is a big experiment to understand tornadoes in the Southeast. So tell us about uh, the center and then about your specific involvement in and activities going on there. Sure. So the Center for Advanced Public Safety, which is um, at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, 
Um, and, you know, we have two other campuses, Birmingham and um, Huntsville. And um, Huntsville is actually where the atmospheric science program is, is located. But um, the center is actually grew up from a computer science sort of um, initiative. And that was about developing software and applications that could help public safety by helping the agencies, the state level and local and regional agencies involved in public safety. So that would include folks like the police department, right? Um, but also it's gone, it's sort of broadened to include a lot of other agencies. So for the police departments, for example, um, CAPS is very proud of having created something called e-citation, which is an application that helps, I'm sorry to tell you, application that helps police to more quickly and efficiently write citations, um, say at a traffic stop, which actually increases their safety as well. You know, there's some um, research about the danger officers are in when they have to pull an automobile over. And so um, we've done, the, the center has done a great deal with that and has these long-term uh, relationships in those kinds of areas. We also created the UA Safety app on campus campus, uh, working with the emergency manager for campus and his office. Um, and that thing works really beautifully. We have found, you'll appreciate this, Marshall, as a faculty member, we found that while the students don't necessarily pay as much attention as we might like them to when we send them warnings, but their parents are able to sign up for the app. <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah, so, so they can get the text to the kids if they need to. That's right. So, you know, when say like uh, uh, for us tomorrow here, you know, under uh, pretty significant risk for tornadoes, um, as those messages start generating out, we find that their parents will will then see these messages, contact their, their student and say, you know, where are you and what are you planning to do? And so uh, it's really enhanced sort of the safety all around. And you referred to the Vortex Southeast project, right, which is a big NOAA initiative that um, Congress um, uh, itself initiated a number of years ago. And so I'm currently on a project that is in collaboration with the University of Oklahoma um, and Jack Friedman, Dr. Jack Friedman, um, is a co-PI with uh, uh, Laura Myers at our place, Dr. Myers. And so what we're doing is really very unique, actually, Marshall. We are attempting to collect systematic data from households who volunteer with us um, before, shortly before a tornado uh, warning, where we could be in a warning while we're in that watch phase, but we're always looking at the storms coming from the west, right? And so we contact them about two hours before those storms are going to arrive, and we have an interview protocol. Then about maybe within an hour of this stuff coming to us, we interview them again, which is a, as close to during the event as we're willing to get, right? We don't want to jeopardize anybody's safety by, you know, having their attention away from where it should be. Um, and then immediately after the event, assuming that's not three o'clock in the morning, um, as close to, to immediately after the event, and then we do it about, um, 48 hours later, and then we're going to do one more, it's a lot of interviewing, one more time about a month later over that same event. So what we're looking at is how people are using the, where they're getting their information from, why they choose those sources, 
how they're understanding that information, how it feeds into their immediate decision making to seek shelter or not seek shelter. Do they reach out to, let's say, remind neighbors or family about this kind of thing? Um, are they huddled alone or do they leave their even their own place and say, go to a neighbor so there's more people together? Um, and then how they remit what they remember as time goes on, our friends in psychology can tell us that memory um, declines very quickly. It erodes very quickly. Um, and even 24 hours later, you're lucky to remember about 25% of anything that you, you say, learned or were exposed to 24 hours earlier. So um, we're interested to see how weather events evolve in terms of what people can remember and what stands out for them, their experience. So it's very unique. As you know, normally a survey might be done, let's say, you know, a day to a month later. So, and the systematic collection lets us really connect up the dots for how people make sense of information as they're moving through time relevant to or salient to any particular unpleasant event. <laughs> Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I we are friendly today because we are talking with Dr. Susan Jasko of the University of Alabama and University of Georgia, University of Alabama. They get together on the football field every now and then. It's not so friendly, <laughs> but Susan and I have known each other for several years now and are colleagues, so uh, we're playing nice today as, as Bulldogs and, and uh, Crimson Tide. But we're talking about uh, forthcoming changes in National Weather Service advisories, the role of social sciences broadly within weather, communication, risk, and warnings today. Uh, you know, I've often said that, you know, we've got really amazing satellites now, the new GOES generation satellite, the dual polar metric radars, and all kinds of gee whiz bang technology and science models and so forth. But I think this is the forefront of the messaging and forecast process to, that matters the most. I mean, we can have the perfect forecast from right. the models, but if it's not being consumed properly or understood or interpreted in the ways that we intended, then was it really a good forecast? And so that's that's why I think this discussion with Susan is so important. So let's let's dive right in. There have been some changes uh, to the coming alert system by the National Weather Service. And I want to get your thoughts on some of them. Um, how are the simplifications uh, to the system going to be rolled out? And was there a significant amount of research that went into this process from your from your knowledge? Yeah, so there was, in fact, a huge amount of research that's been put into this. And um, as you probably know, Marshall Eli Jacks um, in um, NWS headquarters, right, is 
the person who uh, spearheaded this effort over, I don't know, what are we on year six, seven um, of this particular hazard simplification effort. And there's been a huge really amount of social science research. And another really positive thing I think that Noah did was set up community meetings and created many opportunities to collect direct feedback from partners and from the public in general in terms of asking questions about what forms of messaging were working or not working, and in particular, the watch warning advisory system, right? Um, how that was, was being understood. I remember a workshop, um, I wanna say, I think it was in Portland, Oregon maybe, um, that I was a part of where um, Noah brought a bunch of us in um, to a setting, almost all social scientists, although there were, of course, uh, NOAA staff and, and NWS staff there. And we spent a lot of time talking about what questions needed to be asked and what kind of research we needed to do and whether or not the system, um, as, it was, as it then existed, whether it might need to be changed or not changed. So I, I think that that's been very successful in a lot of ways. And as we know now, um, NOAA plans to uh, gradually get rid of advisories, not all of them, but most of them. Let's let's start okay, before you move forward there, Susan. I realize I jumped into this question. Um, the watch warning advisory. Can you give give the listeners a little one oh one on those <laughs> and then why it was sort of determined that advisory is the sort of the, the, the thing bad, to go out, the, the thing to go out, because I think a lot of people would argue that there are problems with watch and warning to people, <laughs> depending on where you live. People get watch and warning confused. I hear that all of the time. But yeah, talk to I, I think we all do. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I think we, Brad Panovich's cupcake analogy that he tweeted about cupcake watch and warning, where he, cr- he tweeted a picture of the ingredients for a cupcake and said, that's cupcake watch. And then he tweeted a picture of a cupcake. <laughs> said that's cupcake warning and so i thought that was one of the most effective communication tools i've seen but yeah talk about why what an advisory is and why it was singled out okay well you know we in the social science community uh and inside of NOAA to a certain extent though i'm not sure they like this we we call it the wawa problem right the wawa problem and and from a linguistics right kind of uh, a look you think well that's one of the problems is that these for many people who get them confused right what's the difference between a watch and a warning um uh, and wasn't there a wonderful David Letterman moment where I just, gosh, I love that clip. It's hilarious, right? Where um, they m- sort of mock the whole system and, and you know, a watch, watch, warning, a warning, watch, warning, a watch, watch, warning, warning. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It was. Um, but, it, but it, you know, it's legitimate for most people about getting those confused. First of all, they both start with a WA sound, a wah-wah sound, right? Um, and... and so it's a little harder for your brain to kind of decide where the dividing line is there, right? Which is more important. And also, although, you know, once if you're schooled into any set of lingo, right, um, and technical terms that are used in a field, you they become native to you and you think the whole world must see them that way. But, you know, if you poll any sort of random group of people, I think we tend to find, as you just said, <laughs> That, you know, half of the group thinks warning is more significant than a watch, but other people think the opposite. And I remember talking to Noah people who said to me, how could they possibly think that a watch is more significant than a warning? And I said, well, they're thinking 
the, the use of the word watch as in someone shouting watch out as a projectile is heading for your head you know yeah. so then watch becomes like the immediate like watching out is like the most imminent thing right yeah i had a student tell me like an elementary school student tell me and it was the most sensible thing ever from a fifth grader says well dr shepherd i thought it meant you're watching the tornado which means it's happening and i always felt that a warning means you're warning me that one might happen so i thought yeah. that was about as simple and plain as it gets that bless the bless the fifth graders right like that exactly right right that that kind of thing there's nothing inherently more you know weighted about one of those words right and so um it it really is confusing. And then advisories sort of were in there and people had seen to the research shows, right. That people generally had a tendency to think of an advisory as stepping down as being less significant than either a watch or a warning, really. Um, it's certainly been a warning and that's not exactly right. You know, it doesn't, while advisories are intent are messaging about um, uh, impending events or impending circumstances, that don't quite rise to the warning threshold that they that's been set by the agency, they do rise enough to warrant, you know, alerting people about them, right? And hence the word advisory. And so um, I think that causes a lot of confusion for people who maybe when they relax because they hear the word advisory, relax too much um, instead of remaining at a significant level of alert. And so the research there, and I think that, you know, Eli and his team um, inside of NOAA, that they they really uh, began to wonder, would it be better to simplify down to two levels um, and then still, of course, communicate the information in an advisory, but drop the use of the term, don't give it that headline. And so that that's the conclusion um, that they've reached. Now, we have yet to see, of course, it'll be some time before we'll be able to tell, uh, does it have the desired effect? That is, we may have solved the advisory problem, but will we have resolved the watch warning? Problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this advisory issue was something that played out a little bit here in Atlanta during the snowpocalypse event from 2013, 2014, back in that time frame, because yeah. I think there was a winter, a winter storm watch and then it went to an advisory. And I think there was a perception of a downgrade because of that advisory language. And so may, maybe people relaxed oh, yeah. a little bit and decisions were not made that perhaps should have been made. So from your perspective, and we're, we're, we're dealing with this over a series of podcasts. I know we're going to be talking to okay. um, a meteorologist and weather geeks, executive producer, Mike Chesterfield, and mm. uh, another episode where we're going to, talk about some of these exact things from a different perspective um your perspective i, I think and let me see if i'm gleaning reading the tea leaves <laughs> that you think this is a good thing i i do in the sense of um there are a lot of products messaging products that are are created or or can be created by the weather service and NOAA. Um, and I think that when I think about the current state of, if you will, the communication environment in which we all live today um, with digital messaging and so many people can be content creators, right? So just like we're doing this, anybody can create a podcast, etc. cetera. Um, there's just, we are bombarded with messaging. And it becomes a lot of white noise and a lot of distraction. On top of that, you know, contemporary life is hardly um, the slow lane, right? <laughs> right? And so if you're busy raising a family, you have each kid has an independent schedule. 
And, you know, parents have to coordinate that. Most of the time, parents are both working. Um, There's just like there's so much to absorb our day to day attention that when we are trying to penetrate through that with an important message about that relates to, you know, the safety and the welfare of people and their families, there's a lot to get through. There's a big din out there. Right. So I think honing in on messaging and making it sort of sharper. So that people, when it comes through, it's, they, they're not like, what, what, what form of weather messaging is this, right? In their heads, they can just be, oh, a weather message, I must pay attention, right? Yeah. Um, or a warning, like, this is a significant message, I must pay attention. So I think that that's probably overall a better communication strategy than um, adding more layers of different kinds of messaging and relying on, I think maybe this is the key, Marshall, relying on the category of messaging to carry so much weight and meaning in the minds of people for whom weather messaging is nothing they ever think about except in the moment they simply have to. That that's a really important point that you just made, because I think those of us like you and me that are weather attentive, he's like, of course, you should have known that there was a tornado coming. (laughs) What do you mean it came without warning? I mean, because we know that there were probably, you know, lots of information out there. But again, most people, you know, my wife is about as no nonsense as it comes about this. She knows that I'm always paying attention. She's like, look, just tell me, is it going to rain? And is there a storm coming? I mean, that's kind of what she wants to know when those moments. And I think that reflects uh, the perspective of quite a few people people. Uh, do you see, I mean, again, so I thought, I, I suspected that I thought knew where you stood on this, but do you see any potential downsides? Um, you know, transitions are always bumpy. It changes, right? In, in any, in any communication system, <clears throat> when we make changes, it also changes the dynamic between the two parties involved. So a lot of communication theory talks about power in terms of communication. And the reason is because of that relational dynamic. And so, I mean, just to give you a different kind of example, when we teach interpersonal communication, which I prefer to do actually to the older the person, the better. Um, so 18 year olds, I, this is a different course than when you teach a grad, grad students or, 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 you know, I'd say adults in their thirties or something. Right. The reason is because when we talk about this power stuff, once people can, then we lay that out systematically uh, sometimes marriages devolve in the face of 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 the of one of the persons being like, wait a minute, I know what you're doing now uh, to the other person. But this is the, the dynamics there in any form of communication and among any two parties so that um, change is often resisted by one side, at least one side. Right. That's initiated. So I expect there'll be a, a you know, a flurry of criticisms. And any time there's a moment where someone, a critic can say, see, if we had had advisories, you know, that wouldn't have happened or there wouldn't have been confusion. That'll occur for a little while. Right. Um, till people reacclimate. Right. Till the people or maybe the critics reacclimate. Right. To what's happening there. Um, but there's, as I say, just always resistance. You know, like when they um, in psychology, they know if. Um, one party, if you say one member of a couple is an alcoholic and decides to control that, right, and stop drinking and sort of change their habits, a lot of times the other partner or the whole family around them will unconsciously sabotage those efforts because it's change. 
Mm. And it affects how we understand ourselves in relation to the other. Now, I think the public will be the least bothered in the end because we've just described how their relationship with weather messaging for many people is really minor, so minor for them. Right. So that's not going to ruffle their feathers much, I don't think. But Marshall, do you remember what happened when (laughs) the weather service finally moved from all caps to mixed case? Quite a bit of chatter in the weather community. Oh, my word. (laughs) Yeah, my my wife or kid probably never knew what happened. (laughs) I think many people would have been like, what? There was a change. Right. And so but but Lord, that was quite the bumpy ride for a little while inside inside. So I, I suspect that could happen. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm enjoying my conversation with Dr. Susan Jasko from the University of Alabama, talking about some changes that are forthcoming. And I think, as you mentioned, these changes are going to be gradual in the phasing out of the use of the advisory term. So you may not hear uh, some of these things going away immediately, but I think there's a phasing in period. One aspect of the advisories that... Uh, I, I do think about is they, they had a graphical component to them. Uh, as I understand it from what I've seen from the information that has come forth, uh, the new statements that the Weather Service plans to issue are going to be more plain language statements that try to illustrate the threat or the impact without the graphics. What are your thoughts on that or your initial reactions? I'm 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 always in favor of plain language um, uh, for messaging purposes. I think the the less we rely on an insider technical set of terms, the better. Right. I don't know about you, uh, Marshall, but every time I talk to a doctor or a lawyer, I want to throttle them for the first five minutes because not they don't all recognize that they're not speaking English. Right. (laughs) Ordinary English when they're talking. Um, And so um, I think that that plain language move is is generally going to pan out to be a a very good one. Because I think you don't harm anybody who was already very familiar, say, relied on those. And, you know, advisories are going to stay in in some places. And I think it's marine advisories, for example, like small craft warnings and that kind of thing that that will stay in place in that little domain, um, which I think is a good idea. It's a it's a small select set of people most of the time. Um, And, you know, people who are around water and use small crafts all the time, they're pretty darn focused on the weather because they they have to be. They have to understand the natural environment to be safe. Um, And so that makes sense. But, you know, moving to plain language means people with the technical knowledge can understand just fine, but also people without technical knowledge or who don't ordinarily have to engage that messaging can grasp it without the barrier of uh, more technical or more specialized language in place. And I, you know, visual representations can be great for certain kinds of information, but they, they can also lead to ambiguity in messaging just like language can. And so I, I think, 
you know, while a good image can be powerful or the right kind of graph can be really useful, um, I think they aren't always essential. And a lot of times, again, like they might be nice to have, but they aren't essential to getting the message across. And that, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you next, because I do know that some colleagues at the Weather Channel or maybe even some local TV stations have raised con- some concerns about this move. And I think they're a visual medium. They, they rely on sort of visual things to warn the public. Yeah. So um, what would you suggest as a communication expert in terms of uh, organizations like this conveying message in this new era of plain language and perhaps less use of, of graphics and the advisory terminology? So I I think uh, one thing is you can take advantage of the fact that you have an expert who's also very talented in front of a camera. You know, it's a relatively rare combination. Those folks are amazing in so many ways. You know, and take advantage of that and have them talk, right? Get sort of get the camera closer in so it's more like a conversation, right? And let them say what what that uh, message is rather than necessarily relying on type on the screen. Not that you might not also add that or add it later. Um, but I think that that's really powerful for a lot of people. And let's face it, a lot of people watching weather go to their favorite broadcasters, right? And that familiar face and voice, that means a lot to people watching who have chosen those messages and are doing it so that they get the information from the person that they trust the most. So I think that's a really uh, valuable tool right there. Interestingly, a colleague of mine here, his name is Jake Reed. Um, He was a broadcast meteorologist and he came uh, to UA. He got his master's degree in geography. He and I, I worked with him on um, a study that he created uh, looking at, you know, the seven day forecast graphics that are that are typical. Um, we pulled some he pulled some of the icons for like rain and sun, the percentage of rain and sun um, and typical phrases that go with those. Um, and then ran a survey where we got many several thousand folks to respond, actually, um, to, from the public to say, you know, does this icon, basically, we didn't take quite this way, does this icon tell you about how much rain will happen? And people would respond to these. And what we found is almost none of (laughs) the icons we tested, did people strongly all agree, oh, that means it's gonna rain. So I, you know, sometimes I think we get a little over invested in like the details there, as though those were powerful for other people. So probably some research there would, additional research there will go a long way. Yeah, and I'm gonna tap my sort of collegial relationship with Susan Jasko to get some tea here because I know you're well-connected in the field. What other changes (laughs) can we expect in the future as it relates to messaging and warning? What are are you hearing or what are you aware of from uh, studies and going on? So I think that um, one of the things that's happening is that there's um, a real concentrated effort now um, initiating and maybe moving forward in looking at a couple of things, looking at other kinds of products as these are developing in terms of the technical knowledge. So seasonal and sub-seasonal kinds of forecasting, right? And that's going to require an adaptation of the messaging, right? And more tailoring. So I think we're starting to think about, you know, how are we going to reach, let's say, the agriculture? 
agricultural community in a particular region in regard to the sub-seasonal or seasonal forecasting and make that information as useful as possible across that industry, right? So that it becomes actionable in good ways um, with better economic as well as safety benefits. So I, I, I see that as, a, again, a kind of honing in and tailoring more and being more aware of the sort of, I'm going to call them users, though I hate that word really, but the end users, right, of, of what their real needs are and in how that information fits into their world rather than sort of, you know, we build it and they'll come to us. Yeah, this is amazing. This is, wow, we are out of time. I knew oh. this was going to be a great episode. Uh, Susan is so uh, engaging and always filled with useful information. But before I close out the show, it's that time of the podcast where we recognize our geek of the week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Kenny Blumenfeld. Kenny is a climatologist for the state of Minnesota and also works on climatology data within Hennepin County's emergency management. His favorite type of weather is extreme weather events, and he also loves weather history. Kenny even created his own documentary on Minnesota winters, the story of winter a few years ago. Now, if you know someone that is deserving to be the candidate for the next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages to apply. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. This has been great fun. Well, I really appreciate what you've uh, shared with us and hopefully the listeners learned a few things uh, about the back end part of the weather forecast process, arguably the most important part. Uh, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.